you'd open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3. just like to say how good it is to be back in the pulpit today. I've been out of it unexpectedly for a few weeks, given the nature of things, or those of you who are unaware, the trusses over my living area in the house failed, and um, it has uh, introduced some uncertainty into life. And um, as I told the kids, the only thing we've lost is a bunch of old trusses we didn't want anyway. And so uh, all has been good so far, and um, I'm happy to be back. Before we read the text, Ralph wanted me to mention that he's got some space on his property for farming, uh, uh, for gardening. If you would like, uh, he lives over in Huntsville, and if you would like some, I would imagine, choice gardening plots that Ralph himself will maintain with irrigation... Uh, then you can see him, and uh, the land is going to go fallow anyway. And so if you'd like to use that, he wanted to make that available to everyone, and he's reminded me of that uh, with his raised hand. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We're going to study the first 10 verses of Exodus 3 today. We've been studying through the book of Exodus, which is our custom here at Fellowship Bible Church. We like to take whole books of the Bible and work our way through them. We're not working our way through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. What we'd like to do is select books and work our way through them. And we've arrived this morning at Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, Out of the midst of the bush, he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, And the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is God's word, and I'm certain that he will add his blessing to the reading of it. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to know your mind in this passage, and I pray that you would help us to see how you call a man, 
how you call anybody for that matter. Help us to peer into your character and understand that you want to know our afflictions and our sufferings. You get inside them and you know them intimately and you feel for them even more intensely than we feel. Father, you are determined to do something about our sufferings. And here you commission a rather unlikely candidate. Lord, as we look into this, may we not necessarily see Moses, but may we see you, the great king who stands behind all of this. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1776, the United States went to war against Great Britain. To believe the history that was taught to me when I was in school, I always envisioned the Minutemen and the militia and the soldiers of the Army of the Americas to have been well-dressed and well-kept, and they had polished shoes and gold buckles and Rifles that always fired perfectly straight and hats that were triangles and they had a great leader in George Washington and how could they not have won that war? Well, then you pick up a more modern history book that tells the inside story and you realize what a ragtag group of soldiers that was. The first winter, the U.S. forces suffered more than 50% casualties for lack of shoes. The soldiers that had rifles to shoot had no powder for their guns. Nor could they make powder because the United States did not have a plant that processed this chemical called saltpeter, which was essential in making ammunition and powder. The camps were overrun with dysentery and illnesses that were completely avoidable because the soldiers insisted on digging their latrines right next to their tents. And basic sanitation fell apart. And had the British been able to mount any form of offensive at all, we would probably to this day be singing God Save the Queen. When you look back on history sometimes, you realize that an unlikely group of people or an unlikely person rose to the fore. And it could only have been at the hand of providence that something special was taking place. Well, this is the case with the person Moses. Never was there a more unlikely leader of God's people. What we're going to do today is study these first 10 verses where God calls this man in particular. And then Moses was more aware than any of us are of his weaknesses. And he's got objections. He says, I don't want to do it, Lord. I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other. And God overwhelms and overcomes and continues steadfastly to call this man to his service. And we're going to hold off on those till future sermons. For this week, we're going to look at the heart of God in calling this particular man. But before that, let's get back up to speed, for we've been out of Exodus for quite some time. In the 
first two chapters of Exodus, we read about how Israel has gone down into Egypt. They went down, just a small little family, and now they're a huge group of people. It's a number of people that probably rivals modern-day Chicago. Large number of people. And Israel was, uh, Egypt was oppressing them with slavery and persecution. They were trying to slay their children, throw their babies into the Nile. And the more Egypt persecuted Israel, the more they grew. God was blessing this nation with birth rates that were absolutely astronomical. Babies upon babies upon babies. And for all that slavery and for all that danger, God's people still had not begun to call to God. Well, there's a character in Exodus 2 who's born. We're not told his name given at birth. We're just told that he was cast upon the Nile uh, according to Pharaoh's orders. His mom built a little boat and floated him out onto the Nile during the day so that he wouldn't be gathered up by the patrols. And she could say to the Pharaoh, look, I'm obeying you. I just threw my child onto a flotation device. Well, Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter, it's so random, came down to the shoreline of the Nile to perform a religious ceremony, and there she finds this baby, letting it rip. The baby was crying. We had a child. We had a child who would purple-faced cry. We called it the purple-faced cry because that's what it was. And you could hear the purple-faced cry from miles away. I'm telling you. Maybe some of you had children that could really let it rip. And this is what Moses was doing. Of course, his name wasn't Moses yet. And this daughter of Pharaoh, overcome with emotion and mercy, reaches down and plucks up that child, and she names him Moses. I've drawn you up. That's what the word means. I've moshed you. I've drawn you up. And she adopts this child, and this child grows up in Pharaoh's house. He's educated in the, the highest halls of Egyptian um, uh, training. He's trained militarily. He has all the bearing of a man who could be a deliverer. And when he's 40 years old, he goes to visit his people, and he's going to do something special. He's, he knows that he wants to start something big. And what does he see? He sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew. And Moses foolishly flashes the temper that will get him into trouble many more times down the road. And he murders that Egyptian man. The next day he goes back out and he sees two Hebrews fighting. And when he intervenes, the Hebrews shock him. And what was it that shocked them, that shocked Moses? They don't want me, was the message. And he was right. They didn't want him. 
And moving forward, we're going to find out that they don't want him. The people of God do not want this man. Not now, not in the future. And that's a hard pill for Moses to swallow. And so he has no home among the Hebrews. They don't want him. They don't respect him. They don't like him. And he can't go back to Pharaoh because he's now a murderer. And so he goes into exile. And there he falls in love with a young lady named Zipporah. They have two children named Gershom and Eliezer. And Moses lives out four more decades. Because even though he was educated in the highest halls that Egypt had to offer, there was a whole other education that Moses needed to attain. And I suppose that could only come complements of four decades of caring for sheep. And so that's what Moses does. And it seems that he has found some sort of domestic tranquility. He's got, he, he and his wife can truly say, us four and no more. <laughs> now there is another factor here. <coughs> Moses and his father-in-law, Jethro, they seem to get on swimmingly. Moses, for all appearances, is enjoying a sort of peasant life with blessings. He's got a happy relationship with his father-in-law. He's got a wife that fears the Lord, two sons. And Moses begins a long process of putting Egypt in his rearview mirror. And so Moses begins to rehearse certain truths. How foolish was I to think I could deliver my people? I've got a speech impediment. They would have never listened to me to begin with. They don't want me. They don't know God. They don't want to listen to me. They don't care what I have to say. Who am I now? It's been too long. And Moses begins to rehearse these points over and over. And they begin to sort of wear those ruts in your conscience that 40 years of telling yourself falsehoods can create. Moses recreates a sort of narrative for his life. All those Lonely afternoons and evenings on the hills far, far away from Egypt. I can only imagine the shame and the guilt that he must have felt. He had everything. He had every advantage. And one outburst of anger threw it all away, or so it seemed. And now all he had was the regret of a lost opportunity and a bunch of sheep. And so that's where Moses is. That's where we find him when we come to chapter 3, verse 1. And in chapter 3, verse 1, I'm looking at my screen. Daniel, do you have 3-1 in front of you? Or did, I, did that not print correctly again? See, I thought I got that changed, but I didn't. Okay. Trust me, there's another slide here that should have been here if it's not on the screen already. In chapter 3, verse 1, we've got our first point, Moses' situation. Look right here at chapter 3, verse 1, and we find Moses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness 
and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There's a lot of information there that Moses, in writing this sort of quasi-biography for himself, this autobiography, there's a lot in here that we can glean from that tells us about his situation. Number one, he was a peasant. He didn't have his own flocks or herds. He was still managing the flocks of his father-in-law. This is what men did when they didn't have much means. They got into the family business and stayed in the family business, and he would become sort of a generational farmer. The second thing we need to note from this, and you'll want to look up, it's Genesis chapter 43. It says there that shepherds, that all shepherds, are an abomination to Egyptians. When Moses was 30 years old and in the prime of his life, living large in Egypt, the occupation of a shepherd was the lowliest thing he could possibly imagine, and he would have never taken it up. And yet here he is, putting behind him his entire past of Egypt and taking up this job that Egyptians would find absolutely abominable. They would not do it. They would not go there. And so here Moses is completely broken from his Egyptian past. Another thing we need to realize is that in the providence of God, he is far away from home. It says in our text that it was the west side of the wilderness to Mount Horeb. Archaeologists will tell you that they're not exactly sure where Horeb is, nor are they even sure where Sinai is. All we know is that Moses is several hundred miles away from home. Commentators naturally ask, why in the world is Moses that far away from home with his flocks? Well, there's a very simple answer for that. It's where the grass was. Perhaps there was a famine. Perhaps there was a, an unseasonably warm summer. Or they didn't get the winter that we had here, and they won't have green grass. And so Moses has to pick up the flocks and go far away. And that's what he is. He's a nomadic peasant farmer. And in God's providence, he gets chased very far away to a future dwelling of Israel. He will revisit this mountain again. This will become an important place for him, not just for this scene, but for many others. At this point in his life, though, it has no meaning. He's just chasing the green grass. And it's there that God begins to intervene. And let's move to our next point, which is a strange sign. In verses 2 and 3, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Let's describe very quickly what Moses saw, and then we'll talk about the theological significance of it. Now, Lord willing, my wife and I, at whenever we move back into our house, for the first time since living in Utah, we, Lord willing, will have natural gas for our heating. And let me tell you how excited I am about that. I think my lower back, though, is the most excited. I don't know that my lower back will ever forgive me for the 13 winters of firewood collection. Well, I reckon we would start, we, my wife and I combined, would start a couple hundred fires a year. And you do something a couple hundred times a year for 13 years, you get pretty good at starting fires. 
Moses had seen these sorts of fires all over the place. He'd started them himself. He's out in the middle of the wilderness, nothing but sand and scrub brush. It's this, these little thistles, these little dried up pieces of sagebrush or the Middle Eastern, Middle East version of a sagebrush. And you realize this is just kindling. It's not the sort of thing that will substantially hold up a fire. And Moses spots out of the corner of his eye the orange flame going up. And if he's seen this sort of thing before, he knows that it's going to last maybe two, three minutes. It's like the cardboard box fire that the bakers have after every Christmas. It's this huge conflagration of flames, and then it's gone. Well, Moses is tending the sheep, and he looks up, and he sees that the fire is still going. That's strange. There must be something more there. He continues his task, looks up again, and realizes that fire isn't going anywhere, and he says to himself, I need to go check this out. And so curiosity gets the better of him, and he picks up, and he goes over. And there, he has an encounter that changes his life forever. God is in that fire. And it says here that it's the angel of the Lord. Look at your translations, everybody. This is something that I I know I've explained before, but I haven't in a while. And so I just want you to see this. If you look at your passage in verse 4, it says, when the Lord. Notice what you see about the lettering of that word Lord. It's capital L, capital O capital R and capital D. What happened there? Did the person who wrote our Bibles get his pinky stuck on the caps lock key? No. He's trying to communicate something. There are a few different titles for God in the Old Testament. One is Elohim, and that just means God, regular God. It's a standard word for God. It could mean false gods. Or God has another name, Adonai. And that means Lord or Master, King. And then there's yet another word, which, whose meaning we'll encounter later in this passage. And it comes from the Hebrew verb, I am, or it comes from the verb, to be. And it's hard to translate because it can mean I was. It can mean I am, or it can mean I will be. In fact... Because those who were tasked with preserving our Old Testament scriptures did not include the pronunciation marks on this word, we're not even sure how to pronounce it today. And when this special name of God appears, our best guess is it's something like Yahweh. The translator indicates that with all capital L-O-R-D. Now this word has been used all throughout Genesis and Exodus, but it's never been explained. And it's about to be explained in this passage right here. And we're told that the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the self-existent one, the I was, I am, I will be, is in this bush. Now this idea of angel 
In Hebrew, the word can mean messenger or maybe better put spokesperson. The designated person responsible to speak for a sovereign. And so, there's a messenger speaking from that fire that has not consumed that bush. The messenger. And Bible commentators will tell you that while we should translate it angel of Yahweh, angel of the Lord, it's best understood this way. It's the messenger, the spokesperson, who is the Lord. It's the spokesperson, the person speaking, who is himself the Lord. This angel of Yahweh, we've met him before. We met him in the book of Genesis, remember? Old Abraham was about to slay his son Isaac. And it says that the angel of Yahweh shouted, Abraham! And then shouted it a second time, Abraham! Because Abraham was 120. <laughs> he was about to plunge his knife, the knife into his son. That was the angel of Yahweh. We're told in Numbers 22 that this angel of Yahweh will speak to a man named Balak. Or 1 Chronicles 22.12, the angel of Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh, or the messenger, the spokesperson who is Yahweh, selects the exact location of where the temple will be during David's reign. This is the Lord Jesus Christ himself prior to coming to earth in human flesh. Jesus was debating with the Jews. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jewish people picked up rocks so that they could kill him because they believed him to be blaspheming. Now I have a question for you. Answer it in your head. If Jesus was less than God, would he be blaspheming? Would he deserve death? Yes. Or is he telling the truth? That's what we're told. It's not blasphemy for the Lord Jesus Christ to say, I'm God, because he is. It's simply stating the truth. And so here is the Lord speaking to Moses. This burning of the bush, this bush is burning, but it's not consumed. It's an important point. Fire will become a prominent role in this book. In fact, at the apex of this book, in chapter 24, verse 17, when Israel worships on this very mountain, God appears as a consuming fire. Why the fire? Why is it not consuming this bush, though? 
Well, what God is attempting to communicate to Moses is that he doesn't himself need fuel to burn. Yesterday, my, before we were going to be moving all of my stuff, all of our stuff, I should have meant our stuff, my wife was so gracious and went and bought us some breakfast burritos because she said, you're going to need the protein as you lift all the stuff and bring it into the house. And I was like, hey, what about you? You're going to be lifting too. And she's like, no, no, my job is to organize. And I was like, oh, yes, well, that's fair, I suppose. We need the fuel. We need the calories to work. And here, this fire is burning but not consuming because God doesn't need anything outside of himself to exist. God just is. He's always been there. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need the plant. He doesn't need anything else. He just is. And so here it is, right here in the text. This is communicated to Moses, and God conveys this point that he doesn't need this fuel. He always has been. He always is. He's utterly self-existent. And this utterly self-existent God begins to speak. And that brings us to our third point. God speaks. God, up to this point in the book of Exodus, has sort of taken, I I hate to say it this way, I, I don't mean it this way, but God has deliberately taken a passive role. He's deliberately taken sort of a back seat. Now, we know that he's been very active in his hand of providence in bringing the people about, but we would have to admit that to this point in the book, God's presence has been felt from a distance. And now, at this point in the book, God begins to directly intervene. And throughout the rest of the book, God continues to intervene directly into the affairs of people. And it's here. This marks a turning point in the book where God breaks through. And so, God begins to speak. And I want, look at your translations. You might want to circle these because they're actually very important. There are four specific speech acts of God right here. It says uh, in verse, um, let's look at verse 4. God called to him. Look at verse 5. Then he said, look at verse 6. And he said, verse 7. And he said. These are all Specific statements of God without any intervention of Moses. Now, why do you think why do you think Moses kept inserting that? Why didn't he just make it one long paragraph or monologue from God? Why does he keep saying, and he said, and he said, and he said? Because Moses is trying to communicate to us that God had some points to make. And the points are these. First of all, he declares to Moses friendship. Look at verse 4. He says, Moses, Moses. In Hebrew culture, in this culture, to call somebody by their name twice was an affectionate way to introduce yourself to somebody. It was leaving off airs. It was an offer of friendship. It's an offer of friendship. How would we do that in our culture? Perhaps 
you walk up to somebody and you shake their hand. That would be perhaps formal, but to reach out and to embrace them and hug them. Now that, that's an overture of friendship. We're beyond professional here. That's what God is doing. He's, Moses, I don't, I don't want you to be afraid here. I'm here on friendly terms. And then the second thing he does is he instructs Moses. I'm coming to you in friendship, but Moses, you have to understand. We're different. I'm God, you're man. And you need to take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. Now that's not a, a rebuke. It's not a warning. It's the sort of friendly instruction that a superior gives to an inferior so that they know how to rightly relate to them. Moses, I love you. I'm here to be your friend, but you're on sacred territory now. In that culture, feet were considered the dirtiest, most despised part of a person. Feet were to be washed and hid. And so God was communicating to him that he needed to take care for his sinfulness and be mindful of it in the presence of holiness. The third thing God does is he identifies himself. He says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what friends do. He's drawing Moses into a historical continuum. I'm not something new. I'm actually something old. You've, you've heard me taught about from your earliest years. Your mom and your dad feared me. That's why they built a flotation device for you to be cast upon the Nile. All those stories you heard about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's me. You know me already. You know much about me already. Your father walked with me, and you can walk with me too. And so, he makes himself accessible to Moses. Yes, even though you need to take care for your unholiness in light of my holiness. I'm here to be in relationship with you. I'm here to instruct you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to have intimate relationship with you as father to son. Here God is coming to him when all this affection. Furthermore, God then commissions him. And that's the bulk of what God says. And I want us to look at this in chapter 7. God says, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Go down with me again to verse 9. And now behold, the cry of the people has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. What God is trying to communicate 
is that he understands, he is aware, he knows. And this this word, these ideas of seeing, hear, and know, what God is trying to communicate is that in every sense, he's grasped the difficulties of of this people. And this word affliction is an important one. Because I've seen their afflictions. I know their afflictions. This word know is the same type of word, is the same word know that is often referred to a husband and wife in their most intimate times. There's a closeness. And the thing that he knows is not necessarily their names, but he knows their afflictions. And this is the word that's used in Isaiah 53. The suffering servant. When God wanted to tell us what Jesus would be like, he said, He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Sorrows, that's our word. Affliction. And friends, person speaking from this bush is the same person who suffered our affliction, is the same person who knows whatever sorrows you, and he knows it intimately. He has seen your suffering under it. He has heard the cries of your heart. And in the moments that you lay on your bed and gurgle those cries that come deep from within, you know the kind I'm talking about. The ones that hurt you to your core. He knows. He feels. He has felt what you feel. He sees and he hears. And he's not empathic. He wants to do something about it. And he tells Moses, I'm moving toward you. I'm moving toward these people. He uses a special phrase here. I have come down to take care of business. You go. Our text says something different. It says in verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh. So the word is halak. It means to go or to come or to walk. He's not saying come as in come to me. He's saying, Moses, go. (laughs) Start walking because I'm going to use you. I'm going to call you. I'm using you. I'm sending you. And again, this is this idea of being sent. The value of your mission is enhanced by the person who commissions you. Let me give an example. Our son Joel likes to tattle on people. And if dad does not give him what he wants, he marches into the kitchen and commissions my wife, Danielle, to come and do something about me who has denied him his happiness in life. 
Well, when baby Joel is in the kitchen pointing, Dad, does that carry much weight with my wife? No. The commissioner, the sender in this case, doesn't quite have the clout to follow through. But what happens when somebody truly important comes along and knocks on your door? Somebody truly important calls you to do something. And then you can go about your task with this underpinning of all that might and power. And God says, you're my ambassador, I'm sending you. And you will have all the might and power that I have at my disposal. This is a great commission. Now, I would like us to make four applications very quickly. Number one, let's consider the seemingly odd choice of God to send a washed-up, never-was-felon with a massive speech impediment and no leadership experience. <laughs> that was Moses' resume. Moses, what was your resume to uh, lead the people of Israel? Oh, well, I was a convicted felon. Okay, check, got that. Um, I have a massive speech impediment and can't get words out. You're perfect. <laughs> uh, Moses, what experience do you have leading people? I led sheep in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses, what have you been given as far as administrative gifts? Um, my father-in-law will tell me what to do. You can imagine the interview process, how that might have gone with the people of Israel. Moses had his opportunity, and he wasted it. His temper got the better of him. It's too much to say he was washed up because he, was ne he never was. He was a little blip on the Hebrew radar and he ran away, never to be seen again for 40 years. Who is this guy? Well, the fact is he's nobody. He's worse than nobody. He's flawed in every respect. In every respect, we would find valuable to be a leader of people. But he has the one thing behind him that counts. The only thing behind him that counts. And it's that God was doing it. God had called him to it. And it didn't matter his criminal past. It didn't matter his speech impediment. It didn't matter if the people wanted him or would follow him or if Pharaoh would listen. God was in it. And it was as good as done. God likes to choose odd people to do big tasks. And perhaps you might be feeling a little misfit for the task that God has called you to do. And to you, I would say, perfect. You've never been better situated. Because when something does happen, God will get the credit and not people. Number two, let's consider the heart of God here. I touched on this earlier, but the angel of the Lord is also the man of sorrows. 
He knew their suffering and he knows yours. And he wants to help you. Number three, let's consider the unapologetic and unflinching commission of God. As we'll see in future verses, Moses is going to say to God, but haven't you forgotten that people don't want me? Or haven't you forgotten that I have a speech impediment? Or haven't you forgotten this and that and the other? But God had made his choice. And friends, God has made his choice for something that he wants you to do. I might not know what that is. And you might be giving God excuse after excuse after excuse. And you might be right. The irony is that all of Moses' excuses were true. I had a basketball coach who used to shout at us that excuses were lies with a little bit of truth mixed in. It was a coach's way of telling us not to bellyache about things. Well, in this case, they, they weren't lies. They were true. And God said, all the same, I'm sending you. And God is unapologetic about it. And he's unapologetically sending you to do the task that he's called you to do. His grace will be sufficient. And then last, let's consider the role of prayer. Twice here, God says that it was the cry of his people that compelled his action. In Isaiah 37, verse 17, Sennacherib and his army have surrounded the Israelites, the southern kingdom of Judah, many generations after this. King Hezekiah took the letter that was written to him. And he said, God, see. God, hear. God, come see it for yourself. Hear it for yourself. And move. That is always a prayer that you can offer up to God. God see, God hear. Please move. And it was those prayers that in retrospect God said is what got me moving. So take your request to the Lord knowing that he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, help us now to look to you as the great shepherd of our souls. Lord, you see our afflictions. You're the, you know them. And you very much want to help us. I pray that you would move in our hearts now and draw us close to yourself. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.